bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the November 15th, 2022 podcast. We're recording this podcast on Monday evening, November 14th, 2022. Election results keep coming in. So we wanted you to know that this is being recorded the evening before posting. So if there's any new developments on Tuesday morning, you'll know that we didn't know about them yet. So it has been a week since the national midterm elections, but it wasn't until yesterday, Sunday, that we learned from which party the control of the Senate would reside. And that's the Democratic Party. And there are still a sufficient number of unsettled races in the House of Representatives that we don't know yet from which party the next speeder will be selected. Now, regarding the Senate, as we record this Monday evening, the Democratic caucus has retained at least 50 seats, set that the Senate will stay under Democratic control. Now, the Democrats could expand their control to 51 should they win the December runoff in Georgia. Regarding the House of Representatives, depending on the source you reference, Republicans have locked down about 212 of the 218 seats needed to control the House of Representatives. The Democratic Party has control of about 204, which means there are about 19 seats where the results are still outstanding. Now, if you assume that Republicans ultimately win all the seats that they're currently leading, they would reach 222 seats and take control of the House of Representatives. As those of you who have been closely following the election season already know, but those of you that have attended many of our conferences, These results are somewhat of a surprise. Going into last Tuesday's voting, there was widespread expectation that Republicans had momentum and were likely to take the House back by a solid margin and perhaps take back the Senate. That was partly because of economic issues and partly due to a long history of midterm elections going against the party of the sitting president. And while it's still more likely than not Republicans take control of the House, it does remain possible that the Democratic Party could win the House and thus hold on to both chambers. The outcome of the election is significant to all Americans, including stakeholders in the community development tax incentive space. Whether you're active in the low-income housing tax credit, private activity bonds, new markets tax credits, the historic tax credit, or opportunity zones, the makeup of Congress is very important to the chances of legislation that would expand or enhance those incentives or even whether or not some of those incentives could be paired back, would be passed. Now, another area in which many podcast listeners are active is, of course, renewable and clean energy. While many legislative priorities of these stakeholders were enacted as part of the Inflation Reduction Act that became law in August, the makeup of the new Congress still will play a role in legislation that could further enhance these provisions. There's a lot happening, and things do continue to change by the day, and sometimes by the hour. In today's podcast, we're going to address what we know, what is undecided, and possible repercussions of different outcomes in the election. My guest is Peter Lawrence, Novogratz Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. Peter has frequently joined me on the podcast to discuss legislation and other happenings in Washington, D.C. If you're a frequent listener to this podcast, you've heard Peter before. Peter works over a Washington, D.C. office and has his finger on the pulse of Congress and the rest of the federal government. He's an expert on affordable housing and has deep knowledge of community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. In today's podcast, Peter and I will start with the discussion of what leadership in the Senate will look like, as well as what leadership in the House, albeit there, we'll discuss what leadership would look like under different outcomes by which I mean whether the Republican or Democratic Party is the majority in the lower chamber. We'll also discuss both the leadership positions in the Senate and the House, as well as the key tax writing committees. After that, Peter and I will talk about the upcoming lame duck session and how that's affected by the election results. Peter will share what community development tax incentive provisions could be included in year-end legislation and what the timing might be. Following that, we'll take a broader view of when a major tax bill could be next considered and how the 2024 election might play into that. There's a lot that's left to be decided. There's also a lot to talk about now. So if you're ready, let's get started. 
Peter, welcome back to Task Red Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. It's a privilege to be back. So before we dive into some of the details and repercussions of last week's election and the ongoing vote counting, it's not really like the elections ended yet. <laughs> if you could share with our audience some of your overarching thoughts or impressions of the results so far before we get into more specifics. Well, as you mentioned, Mike, the election was a bit of a surprise. The Republicans were expected to have a red wave election where 15 to 25 seats would change hands and the House Republicans would have a solid majority and potentially a gay majority in the Senate as well, unifying control of Congress and providing a clear contrast with President Biden for the next two years. That did not happen. And the fact it did not happen, as uh, Democrats are perceived to have overachieved in the election, does scramble the political landscape and means that there is not going to be a clear mandate, or at least as not as clear a mandate as people thought there would be for changing policies in the upcoming Congress. So we're up for, I think, a very tumultuous lame duck session. And for the next coming year, a coming Congress as well, I think a very unsettled political landscape. So thank you for that. And now we can delve into some specifics. And let's start with the House Representatives. Even though we don't yet know which party will control the House Representatives, I do find it interesting that when we were holding our Washington Wire session at the New Market Tennessee Conference, we did discuss the fact that the control of the Senate could come down to a runoff in the state of Georgia and control of the House could be late in coming in that it would be dependent on the vote counting in California of mail-in ballots that can take weeks to be counted in California. And I must say, when I talked about those two options in the House and the Senate, I thought the Senate option was much more likely to happen than having to wait on control of the House on California vote counting. But it does appear now that it is going to depend on the vote counting in California for control of the House representatives. And as we discussed earlier, control of the Senate appears to be in Democratic hands. It's just a question whether they'll have 50 seats or 51. And as most of our listeners know, they have 50 seats in the Senate because the Democratic Party controls the vice presidency. That's a tie-breaking vote, so that's effective control. But let's start with what we might expect under, in the terms of leadership in the House representatives for each party. And since it does appear the Republicans will ultimately win control of the House, let's start with them. Great. Yeah. So today, the House Republican Conference is going to have a vote, a private ballot vote for the leader of the House Republicans. And it is largely expected that Kevin McCarthy from California will win that vote. However, that is not the end of the story. And in fact, the farther he is of that vote from 218 votes, the harder it will be for him to gain the necessary 218 votes in a public open ro roll call vote on January 3rd to actually become speaker. And so he is going to be very focused on trying to make sure he finds a pathway to get those necessary 218 votes. And it will be not so easy. And he may need to make some concessions that will constrain his power as speaker and uh, from being able to enact a policy agenda that he sees fit. And so uh, that is part of the reason why I think we'll have a very tumultuous political scene because he's not at all uh, of getting the speakership as we speak. I'll note that his number two, Steve Scalise from Louisiana, is to have, be uncontested for that number two position, the House Majority Leader, but he could potentially step in to run for speaker if uh, Kevin McCarthy is unable to find a way to getting 218 votes on January 3rd. So those are the likely circumstances. We, you've heard all sorts of other crazy scenarios that potentially might result from uh, Kevin McCarthy not making it, but that's the way I see it at the moment. And uh, we'll just have to see how the votes play out in the coming days and weeks. If I flip to the Democratic side, the 
the picture is also unsettled. Uh, uh, in 2018, Nancy Pelosi promised to her House Democratic colleagues that she would only stay on for two more terms as Speaker. And we, are, we have reached the end of that uh, promise. And I think that it's certainly if the House Republicans do take control as ex uh, we currently expect them to do so, that would give, I think, a uh, reason for Representative Pelosi to step down as the House Democratic leader and uh, pursue another term in the leadership. But if Democrats defy expectations and somehow find a pathway to majority, I imagine that her colleagues may say, we haven't had a strong leader that was able to navigate a very narrow majority for the past two years and uh, ask her to stay on another two years. So we'll just have to see how those vote counting happens. And the House Democratic leadership isn't until after Thanksgiving. And she said she's not going to pu publicly declare her intentions until all the House races are. And so we'll just have to wait to see there. I'll just quickly note that the number two and number three members of that House Democratic leadership are also in their 80s, like Speaker Pelosi. Steady Hoyer of Maryland is the current House Majority Leader. Uh, and Jim Clyburn of South Carolina is the current Majority Whip. It's not clear what of those two will do if Speaker Pelosi does step down. Some have suggested that they'll both step aside for a new leadership, uh, which is Hakeem Jeffries from New York, but it's they have not publicly announced their intentions, just like Speaker Pelosi has not. So we'll just have to see after Thanksgiving what happens there. So thank you for that, Peter. And I do want to move to the Senate, but not just yet. <laughs> I look forward to getting your thoughts on the Senate, but let's discuss the House a bit more. There's more to the House of Representatives than the leadership. So there's one committee that our listeners are very interested in, the Ways and Means Committee, which is the chief tax writing committee in the House of Representatives, which is where significant, I shouldn't just say significant, I should say all tax legislation originates, <laughs> significant or not originates and the current lead Republican, the ranking Republican, since the Democrats control the House and Representative Richard Neal is the chairman of the committee. But the current ranking Republican is Kevin Brady from Texas. But as we both know, Representative Brady is retiring at the end of this year, which means there'll have to be a new lead Republican on the committee next year. And if the Republicans take control of the House, this new lead Republican will be the committee chairperson. And if not, this person would be the ranking member. So what are you hearing in terms of which Republican on the Ways and Means Committee would likely step in as a lead Republican when Kevin Brady steps down? So we know there are three main candidates, all of which are current senior members of the Ways and Means Committee. There is Jason Smith from Southeastern Missouri. There is also Herman Buchanan from the uh, uh, Gulf Coast uh, area of Florida. And then there is Adrian Smith from Western Nebraska. And first, of course, there still needs to be the leadership elections. That's the first step in the process because the leadership elections will determine who is on the Republican Steering Committee, which makes committee decisions. And those elections are happening. Those elections are happening this week. But we anticipate that once those are in selections have happened, that the committee will meet and make decisions on the new top Republican for the Ways and Means, whether Chair of the Expect or ranking member, somehow the Democrats are able to maintain control of the House the week after Thanksgiving. And we'll just have to see who wins that race at that time. So you mentioned three candidates. And maybe you could share what we know about how each of those candidates line up with respect to support of the long domestic tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the historic tax credit, and opportunity zones. I do remember when I testified in front of the Ways and Means Committee last year, I did get a question from Representative Adrian Smith on tax incentives. But share your thoughts on what we know about their, each of their support for these various tax incentives. Sure. So I'll start with Jason Smith because 
he has the most consistent support across all the various redevelopment tax incentives. He is a co-sponsor of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which would enact you know improvements, enhancements to the local housing tax credit. Uh, he's a co-sponsor of the New Markets uh, Tax Credit Extension Act, which would make uh, New Markets uh, credit uh, permanent and uh, a few other policy changes, such as you know, uh, inflation, annual inflation adjustments, uh, and the ability to take new markets against alternative minimum tax liability. He is also a co-sponsor of the Historic Tax Credit Growth and Opportunity Act, which is the broadly supported historic tax credit legislation. And last, he also is a co-sponsor of the Opportunity Zones legislation in the last Congress. He hasn't returned to the bill this Congress yet, but uh, he has that record of support for that. So he clearly, amongst the three candidates, has the, the most public support for the community development tax incentives. Representative Buchanan is also a, a co-sponsor of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act and the New Markets Permanent Bill, but hasn't gotten all of the other bill, other tax incentive bill legislations yet. And then, as you mentioned, Adrian Smith, uh, he is not a co-sponsor on any of the community tax incentives, but has been engaged with you in that uh, uh, hearing and has uh, you know, supported uh, efforts uh, on community developments more behind the scenes in the past. So before we get to the Senate, I want to ask you to briefly, <laughs> we don't have time to go into much detail, but if you could also share with our listeners who we expect to be the lead Republicans on some other key committees, namely the House Financial Services, House Appropriations Committee, actually just those two committees, House Financial Services and House Appropriations Committees. And maybe you could remind our listeners who the Democratic leads are, which I don't believe we expect any notable changes. For these committees, uh, we expect the leaders will just change the gavels. So for the House Financial Services Committee, which is currently led uh, by Maxine Waters, from Los Angeles, California, she would hand the gavel over to Patrick McHenry from uh, North Carolina. And then similarly for the House Appropriations Committee, we expect uh, current chair Rosa DeLora from Connecticut to hand the gavel over to Kate Granger from Texas. And uh, so, you know, the Financial Services Committee, of course, has jurisdiction over the HUD programs and banking legislation like Community Reinvestment Act. So that is a, a key committee we follow. And of course, the appropriation spending committees handle the annual spending bills that determine funding for all federal agencies. And so those are two committees we also follow. Great. Thank you for that. So now let's turn to the Senate. And this time I'm going to ask you to reverse the order. We're not going to talk about Republicans first. The Democrats have retained control of the Senate. So what do you expect to see in terms of leadership? of both the entire Senate, as well as the key committees, which are namely tax, banking, and appropriations. And of course, by tax, I mean Senate Finance Committee, but then also the banking and appropriations committees. So yes, we expect that Senator Chuck Schumer, who was just uh, reelected, to also continue as Senate Majority Leader for the next two years. And he will be assisted by Dick Durbin from Illinois as the Majority Whip. You know, moving to the committees, we expect a newly elect, reelected Ron Wyden from Oregon to continue as finance chair. And he is, of course, an original lead co-sponsor of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. And we expect him to continue to press the housing agenda very much. The other committees that we follow that the leadership is also expected to continue is Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio is expected to continue to be the Senate Banking Committee chair. And I'd like Maxine Waters handles, they, his committee handles the uh, HUD authorization legislation as well as banking legislation. And on this appropriations committee, we'll see entirely new leadership because both the Democratic and Republican leads are retiring. Pat Leahy, the current chair, uh, and Dick Shelby from Alabama are both retiring and therefore Patty Murray, who was just reelected for a new term, will take the gavel from Pat Leahy. And Susan Collins, who has been the long standing top 
Republican for the HUD uh, subcommittee will take the full committee gavel, or full committee leadership position, rather, for the Republicans. So that that's, uh, we'll see a little bit slightly different leadership there. In fact, sort of a little interesting point, it will be the first time in the history that all four preparation leads are women, and we'll see what, how that may change policy going forward. So maybe just briefly summarize for the Democratic Party, who would lead the Senate as a whole and who would lead each of the three key committees? Again, Senator Schumer would lead the Senate as a whole, and Senator Wyden will be the continue to be finance chair. Uh, Senator Brown, Sheriff Brown from Ohio, will continue to be the banking committee chair. And Senator Patty Murray will become the new appropriations chair. Great. Thank you. Now let's turn to Republicans and what you expect in terms of Republican leadership overall, as well as the lead Republican in each of those three committees. Well, I believe that Mitch McConnell from Kentucky will continue to be the Senate Republican leader. There's a little bit of intrigue in that there are some Republican senators who are calling for a delay to the elections this week until after the December 6th runoff between, you know, current Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Uh, but I, I do believe that uh, he will continue uh, to, to remain leader and will, will uh, still has the support of uh, over half of his Republican colleagues. And we also expect that Mike Crapo of Idaho will continue to be the Republican ranking member of the Finance Committee, as well as to mention the other committees, we expect Tim Scott to take over from Pat Toomey, who was retiring at the end of this Congress as the top Republican on the Banking Committee. And as I mentioned actually earlier, we have Susan Collins taking the, the top Republican spot of the Appropriations Committee. And I assume that you would expect that Senator John Thune from South Dakota, who spoke at our Renewable Energy Conference a few years ago, they as assistant leader? Yes, I do. I do anticipate that to happen. He has, you have a term limit for leaderships, but we don't anticipate that change. So in terms of the Senate Finance Committee, we know that Chairman Wyden is a strong supporter of the long monthly tax credit, the new market tax credit, store tax credit, and the like. What can you share about Senator Crapo's support of various tax incentives? So uh, as the typical practice of being a ranking member of a tax writing committee or chair, of course, as the case may be, you, it's not often that you co-sponsor tax bills. I mean, part of the idea behind co-sponsoring tax legislation is you try to get members to push forward for priorities in front of your the committee that you help lead. So it's not entirely unexpected that he is not co-sponsoring tax legislation, but we know he's, he's spoken in a variety of contexts of support for the local housing tax credit. There was a, a hearing in the finance committee in July where he spoke very positively about the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act and the local housing tax credit, as well as the neighborhood homes tax credit. He has spoken at property events at various facilities financed by new markets in his state. And he also, in that July hearing, spoke very positively about the Opportunity Zone incentive, which was largely authored by a member of the committee, a Republican member of the committee, Tim Scott. So we know he's got a, a pretty strong record support on the committee, all the tax incentives. So thank you for all of those insights, Peter. And I do want to get your thoughts about 2023 and 2024, what this new Congress, once we know who controls the House, what could mean once this current session is over. But this current session isn't over yet. <laughs> so before we talk about goals for next year and the year after, there are some significant pieces of must-pass legislation. And I say must-pass in terms of must-pass before the end of the year. And some of these pieces of must-pass legislation could be a vehicle to carry legislation that would move forth some of our, and help us achieve some of our community development goals, or at least our legislative goals. If you could share with our listeners the main items that Congress has on its to-do list this year, and what we expect them, 
then after you do that, I want to ask you what the chances are of us getting some of our legislative goals accomplished this year. So I do think, Mike, that the results of the election will help increase the chances of community development tax incentives. And I think the the main sort of set of circumstances that help us lead to that circumstance is that the there are, I think, a, a decent chance, an increasing chance that there will be a full fiscal year omnibus spending bill considering the lame duck. And once that is on the floor consideration, it is a lot easier to add a tax bill to that. And so we do expect that there'll be discussions. The month of November will be focused on dealing with leadership issues, as we've talked already. But I think as soon as after Thanksgiving, attention will shift very much towards the substantive agenda. And I do believe that, especially with the retirement of the leadership of the Senate Appropriations Committee, with Atlee and Dick Shelby wanting to leave on a positive note, that with the, you know, their legacy items, that that will mean we'll have an omnibus spending as a legislative vehicle for tax legislation. And there are a number of, you know, uh, expiring tax provisions from 2021 and as well as 2022 that are Democratic and Republican priorities that will help foster a deal. And while some have suggested that, you know, a change in leadership means that you know, some House Republicans may want to push to try to defer decisions until they're in power. I think this uncertainty that they're going to be dealing with a very narrow margin would lead them to to try to clear the decks policies and the issues hanging over their head for the start of the new Congress. And so that's why I think that is we're likely to have a substantive lame duck session. I'll just note also very quickly that if for whatever reason there isn't an omnibus spending bill. The other legislative vehicle we're keeping an eye on is the National Defense Authorization Act. That's an annual defense policy bill that Congress has passed 62 years in a row. And I don't anticipate that they're going to break that record this year. And while it typically has not been a vehicle for tax legislation, it has attracted a lot of that have nothing to do with defense over the years, including especially sort of banking-related legislation. So it's not inconceivable that that might end up being a vehicle in, in the case we don't have an omnibus. But I do think that we have a decent chance it's lame duck. That's definitely encouraging to hear. Let's talk now about some of our specific legislative goals. Uh, and by our, I mean the sort of broader community development community, depending upon which area our various listeners work in. They'll want one more than the other. <laughs> but the items that are commonly discussed, and I think most effort is behind, would be an extension of the 12, 12.5% increase in local tax credit annual allocations, which expired at the beginning of this year. There's also lowering the private activity bond financing threshold below 50%. There's also enacting a new neighborhood homes tax credit. There's also efforts to get permanence for the new markets tax credit. There's also the HTC Go Act, the Historic Tax Credit Act that has a number of pieces to it that many in the Historic Preservation Committee would like to see enacted. And then of course, there's the Opportunity Zones Impact Act, which also includes some reporting requirements for Opportunity Zones. So when you're looking at these individual provisions or these bills with a number of provisions within them, what are the chances that you see of some of these provisions actually getting included in a year in bill? And you know, given the fact that the election was so close, it seems like, as you were mentioning earlier, there's a better chance that some of these would get included than if it hadn't been so close. Yeah. And one common thread throughout all these uh, proposals is they're bipartisan. Yes. We got support in both the House and Senate. So they are sort of ideal for a this type of bipartisan. And, you know, the lame duck agenda that I mentioned is going to be addressed in regular order meeting. You need 60 votes from the Senate 
and you're going to need at least 10 Republican senators to vote for it. So I think that these are all sort of possible. I'll note that I do think, you know, on top of that list, the low-income housing tax credit proposals, particularly, you know, the 12.5% allocation increase for 9% allocations and lowering the productivity bond financing threshold from 50% seem atop of the list. May not mean that there are permanent provisions given budget constraints. They may only be temporary, uh, but I definitely think they're in, in the game. And on neighborhood homes, you, you know, the White House in particular sort of viewed both local housing tax credit and neighborhood homes tax credit as a package deal as uh, part of their overall uh, uh, housing supply action plan. And, you know, what, given that the inflation remains a potent issue and a huge concern from a lot of voters, that one of the ways you can help address uh, inflation is by lowering housing costs. And, and I think one of the causes of the fact that housing prices and rents have gone up so much has been a lack of affordable housing supply. So I think there is some going to be a, a serious push for those items. On new markets credit, although it doesn't expire until the end of 2025, it is the cost of uh, getting an indefinite part of the tax code is much less now, you know, roughly $1.38 billion over 10 years than it will be for every year we get closer to that 2025 expiration date, the cost goes up. So there's an incentive to try to address it now. And then lastly, I'll just note, Run up to these zones. That's probably going to be the one of the top priorities of Tim Scott uh, your uh, tax bill. And one could easily see them as part of the overall package as a sort of Republican priority added in amongst what are more seemingly Democratic priorities with the other financial uh, tax incentives. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you also about a disaster bill and you know, just recently had Hurricane Nicole in Florida and hurricanes before that. So what are you hearing about a disaster relief bill? And I mentioned that, of course, because a disaster relief bill in the past many times has had some temporary enhancements of some tax incentives to aid in the recovery and also would by nature be a tax bill, which would lead to the potential for other non-disaster related provisions to be part of a larger tax bill that includes disaster relief. Indeed. And Hurricane Ian was a very substantial storm that heavily impacted Florida. And so just before the election, Senator Marco Rubio put forward a $30 billion plus recovery package for disasters. And I expect that could be very much in play as part of the lame duck agenda. And if Congress were to also have a disaster tax bill, which they often do, given one of the main reasons why Congress routinely does a disaster tax bill is to allow households to tap their 401ks, which they have historically allowed households to do in disaster the disasters. And once they decide to do that, that brings up the possibility of other disaster tax provisions. If Congress were to adopt the same policies they did in December of 2020 on their disaster tax bill, we could see 25 states plus Puerto Rico potentially getting an allocation of a disaster tax credit. So about 2.8, according to our calculations, billion dollars, and which you know is significant. It's more than they authorized years ago. And similarly, we could see an allocation for new markets as well. We saw it for Hurricane Katrina, where Congress authorized a billion dollars. Um, new markets authority over three years. So we'll see if those proposals gather momentum and steam in the lame duck. So now I'd like to move past the end of this year and look into 2023 and 2024. And the Senate is con- will be controlled by the Democratic Party. The House, we don't know yet if it's Republicans or the Democratic Party, but we think it's Republicans. Let's start with Assume for the moment that the House is controlled by Republicans. What are the chances of communal tax incentive legislation being enacted in 2023 or 2024? Well, if, if 
my predictions on a productive lame duck session play out, I will say, I don't think there's going to be a lot of activity on community development tax legislation in the next Congress. There just aren't going to be many issues where you're going to be able to get through both a Republican House, as we anticipate it will be, and a Democratic Senate. And there aren't also expirations of other major tax provisions to help drive that debate as well. The only one I see on the agenda are the aviation-related taxes in 2023, which routinely Congress has just extended without much of a policy change. So I just, I think that they, there may be, you know, attention elsewhere in the next Congress, but I don't anticipate much happening if the lame duck sort of really addresses the main expiring tax provisions. I'll just also note briefly that 2025 is shaping up to be a big year. A lot of provisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expire in 2025, including New Marcus, as I mentioned previously. And we, that is, I think, setting up to be a very substantive year for tax policy. And, but 2023 and 2024 don't appear to be those years. And I guess I would just add, when I think of 2023 and 2024 and a really tight Senate, either 50 or 51 Democrats or those that caucus with Democrats controlling the Senate and a House that, I mean, the House could end up being one or two vote majority as you really start looking at the health of various members of the House and the Senate, and you could really have an impact in terms of you know, not being able to pass legislation because of, of those sort of issues. We faced some of those earlier this year in the Senate at different times. And traditionally you don't have that in the house because there's usually there's enough of a majority then not to be as relevant, but it's certainly a factor that has to be weighed as you're thinking of 2023 and 2024 and what is or isn't possible in terms of, you know, the outcomes in the Senate and the house. So with that said, I did, I do think we should say something briefly about if the house were to stay in democratic hands, it would seem to me that if the democratic party does end up controlling both the Senate and the house, that there would be some effort at a, another budget recognition bill where they could pass legislation solely with democratic votes. Obviously it was a challenge to get that done this year. <laughs> Over the last two years, that ended up with the Inflation Reduction Act. So maybe you could share your thoughts on the potential of some type of budget reconciliation bill if the Democratic Party does retain control of the House. Well, you're certainly right, Mike, that they will try because, after all, that is the way you are able to pass your agenda, like the key things, without interference from the other party. I'll just say that it'll be very difficult, you know, especially if it is a 50-50 Senate, well, we could definitely see the challenges of what we saw the past two years with Senator Manchin, Senator Sinera, both of which would be out for re-election, by the way, in 2024, being an impediment to passing reconciliation legislation. And then similarly, if you are, you know, having a, we're likely to have a very narrow uh, situation if that somehow could defy expectations and retain control. And there are a number of uh, House Democrats who are not an automatic yes for a reconciliation legislation. So I, I can imagine they will definitely try, but it remains to see how successful it will be. So thank you for that. So we've discussed a lot of items that are important to our listeners that may be addressed by Congress, hopefully this year, but if not this year in the next session of Congress or Maybe it waits until that really big bill in 2025 that will certainly happen one way or the other. But one thing we haven't mentioned yet, but we should be sure that we mention whenever we discuss legislative matters, is the Novograd Working Groups. As our listeners know, we have working groups for many tax incentives, including the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, Neighbor Homes Tax Credit, the New Markets Tax Credit, Renewable Energy Tax Credits, and the Opportunity Zones Incentive. So this is a good time, Peter, if you could share some of the benefits to our listeners of being part of these groups, or maybe said differently, oh, a listener who isn't in one or more of these working groups, what are the benefits of me joining? 
Well, we're certainly will keep you up to date with what's happening legislatively, but perhaps even more importantly for the next two years, we'll be very much into the weeds of regulations, administration of the, the various uh, tax incentives. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be a huge implementation project that the administration has just started uh, the uh, public engagement on and with public comments, et cetera, and so forth. And that's going to continue into next year. And there's a number of other, there are a number of provisions in the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which the administration choose could implement the regulations as well. And so we anticipate that uh, that will be a, a focus next two years and, and maybe potentially also uh, in, in the neighborhood, uh, in the, sorry, the new markets tax credit arena, potentially consolidating the rounds from next four into a more, uh, fewer rounds to get the sort of tracks more on in line with the uh, calendar years. So we'll, we'll just have to see. There's a lot, I think, that the working groups will be engaged in and encourage folks to reach out if you're interested in joining in. And I would also encourage folks to reach out and join if for no other reason and help us underwrite all the efforts that we engage in. We'd certainly be appreciative of it. But I'd also note that the principal area, the principal efforts that the working groups put forth is in education, in terms of educating the members as to what's happening currently, as well as helping generate recommended practices. Uh, those areas that we don't get guidance from Treasury on, and there's a, a sense that we should develop some type of recommended practice. So there's a bit of safety traveling with the herd. So a lot of the work of the working groups is just that, helping identify tax issues that you may not be aware of, but you want to find out sooner than later, and you just want to find out in time to course correct. But we spent a lot of time discussing issues and some of the recommended practices and solutions to them. So it's a nice way to stay current on some of the cutting edge techniques and opportunities to maximize tax benefits from a given tax incentive. So thank you for sharing that, Peter. And please do stick around for our off mic section. For as you know, I get to ask you some questions of nothing to do with the election, or at least nothing directly to do with the election. So you can share with listeners a little bit of your off-topic wisdom and insights. And to our listeners, I do urge you to join our working groups. You should also consider joining us in Las Vegas early next month for the Novogratz 2022 Tax Credit Housing Conference. We'll be talking about a lot of the issues that we discussed here today, and there'll obviously be a lot more. It's also a great opportunity to network with others in the affordable housing community. I will include a link to register for the conference in our show notes. For one thing, we certainly expect to know controlled house representatives by the time of the conference. So we'll be able to go down one of the two paths more specifically. I also mentioned, I'll include links with more information for our working groups that Peter mentioned. Now, next week's podcast, we're going to return to our So You Want to Be a Light Tech Developer series. I'll be joined by my partner, Warren Zebra, from our Portland, Oregon office. Warren and I will talk about something that every low-income housing tax credit development needs. I'm not mentioning an accountant, but you do need an accountant. <laughs> I'm not mentioning a market study, but you do need that too, both of which we can provide. But here I'm talking about a final cost certification. We'll discuss what a cost certification is. It's important in a low-income housing tax credit transaction. For those of you that are more advanced, we'll discuss some of the planning opportunities available to help maximize tax credit basis. You can be sure that you're notified of next week's episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and now on YouTube. Now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So Peter, the first question I'll ask you is what advice would you give the 25 year old version of yourself? So this is like you two or three years ago. Bowling <laughs> was. What's funny, I've been preparing for the podcast, Mike. I was trying to think, what was I like when I was 25? It's almost, it feels sometimes a little hard to get back yourself into that space. 
things were very different. But I guess the one piece of advice I would have uh, is that I think you don't understand how important it is to network uh, until you've actually uh, been around for a little while. I think getting outside of your circle that you're, you travel with most of all is a hard thing to do when you're just starting off. It's not an easy skill. It's, I'm not a natural networker myself, I must admit. Uh, and it took me a while, but I've really gotten to, to realize because that how you, when you make relationships outside of your usual circle, I think it really, it, uh, it broadens your perspective and enables you to, you know, achieve things I think you normally cannot do on your, by yourself. And opens up, I think, a lot more career opportunities, the more so you do that. So I would have told myself, you know, get out there, get out and network with other like-minded colleagues in the policy space, because I think I didn't do a good enough job of that when I was 25. I love that advice. You never, uh, you never have too many friends and you always have too many enemies, no matter how many you have of either. <laughs> and I think the networking advice is very good. I'd also just also note that it's not just networking with those that have more experience and all the rest. It's also networking and staying in contact with your peers. Because when you're 25, at least for me, I wasn't thinking so much about when I'm 25, fast forward 20 years, well, all my peers <laughs> are going to be in different places and all the rest. So it's definitely good to be networking among your peers and just networking at all levels. Really? Yeah, if I could just add a little bit of on that point, I, I uh, you know, one of the great opportunities I had early in my career was as a presidential management fellow, and that really was that, that I think helped uh, enable me to network because we all were relatively similar aged, coming most of us coming out of grad school, I you know a whole wide variety of areas of the federal government, and we had regular opportunities to meet and discuss and see how we're all dealing with the challenges of starting a career in the federal government. And so that was a great opportunity that helped me understand the power of networking and why it's valuable. That's a great example. So my second question, I'll only bother you with two today. You work in an area where things are constantly changing. As I noted, even earlier in the podcast, sometimes hourly. What general advice do you have for listeners who want to stay updated? They're in a position where things frequently change. And that's, of course, beyond listening to this podcast every week. But what are some of your tips on staying current? And not just, and I would say staying current in areas that are relevant versus staying current in areas that get stale quickly. Yeah, that can be a challenge because people often follow rabbit holes and not necessarily stay focused on the North Star. What's what you real policy priorities going forward. And it, is, it can be a challenge in the policy arena because some things often, big changes often take some time and it's easy to get distracted by the controversies of the day. And I think to me, what I might share of general advice is that you always want to be able to, despite what's happened, maybe happening elsewhere outside of you, be, you making sure you always are making progress on some key aspects of what you're trying to uh, achieve and make measurable, take those measurable steps on a regular basis. And you may not necessarily see fruit of that labor right way, but it'll pay off when the opportunity does present itself. I mean, on the one way I think about it, and to sort of bring it back to the subject of this podcast is, you know, we've been anticipating that there could be activity in this lane box for a long time. And we've been taking, you know, the steps and the blocking and tacking to get, you know, co-sponsors on the legislation. So we're prepared for that, this opportunity where you have the best we can. And, you know, may not, you know, you may be dealing with one week with some political controversy or another, but if you make those blocking tacking, steps over the course of time that puts you in good position for opportunities that present themselves like we have right now. I think that's great advice. It's trying to filter the incoming by what 
helps you get, reach the North star. I also like to look at things myself personally and say, is this going to matter in a day? <laughs> is this going to matter in a week? Is this going to matter in a month? Is this going to matter, you know, in a year and try to bucket things in that way and try to be more focused on the things that'll matter in a year or longer, or you know, depending upon the issue at hand and which goal you're striving for, obviously, you know, the efforts to achieve something, the lame duck session, you'll say, well, a year from now, if we're successful, it'll matter a year from now, if we're not successful, it won't, <laughs> but we have to be stay focused on getting something done in the lame duck session. But even then a lot of what you work on to get accomplished in the lame duck session, not successful. You could advance the ball for next year. Exactly. Absolutely. And I would say the Inflation Reduction Act didn't have a lot with respect to affordable housing, but it did have a number of provisions. And that's where nominally a lot of the efforts on affordable housing paid some dividends because those provisions got into the Inflation Reduction Act, whereas those efforts hadn't been put forth, then those gains would not have been achieved. So, you know, it's another example of that. And it's also thanks to you. So thank you for your efforts <laughs> to make all of that your contributions, making that possible. Thank you, Mike. And I'll just note, even the main renewable energy provisions were under development for a fair amount of time. So that's another example of, yeah, you never know what happens that Georgia runoff in January, 2021, that all of a sudden led to all this enactment of policy. So it's what, again, you have that North Star and to get you ready for those opportunities when they open up. So thank you again, Peter. And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.